Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done, and to take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me via the magic of the internet is Steve Ovens. Welcome back to the program, sir. Steve, do we have you? Can't you hear me? I can now. Hey, uh, so we had a we had a grand time last week and uh, getting you moved uh, here to the United States. And so thanks to the magic of the Internet, you get to join me. We'll dig into part two of uh, building Steve's house. Yeah, um, and hopefully we'll do a, uh, a kind of have clips from when you actually come to help me do Steve's house. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll head down there and, and uh, probably have some video content to that as well. Uh, but first, top of the program. Our feedback segment. Our first email comes in from Jordan. Jordan writes in and says, hey, Noah, you've mentioned using the YubiKey before on your sh- on your show to store SSH keys. I'm currently using my own YubiKey to store SSH keys. I was wondering your thoughts on using the same SSH key for multiple servers, even if it's stored on the YubiKey. Do you feel that's a secure thing to do? There are also a couple different ways to set it up. One is with OpenGPG. The other is with PKCS11 which is what I use. But there is a third method of creating a certificate authority and then creating an SSH key that way, which is, again, stored on the YubiKey. I'm pretty sure I got the third one wrong in what it does, but I don't understand it. I'm hoping that you could explain it. Well, Jordan, I would need you to send me a little bit more documentation on that. I'm not familiar with uh, with that. I am familiar with the OpenPGP method, and I am familiar with the PKCS11 method. Now, what I would tell you is that the OpenPGP method uh, is available on a wider range of hardware devices. And so, uh, whereas the PKCS11 module allows you a substantial more amount of flexibility. And so if you're tying it to other third-party SSH services, that kind of stuff, um, that's probably the way to go. Now, as to your actual question, is it insecure to use the same SSH key on multiple servers? And to that, I would tell you, no, absolutely not. In fact, that's largely the beauty in having SSH keys or having the YubiKey to begin with. So take this for example. If you have, you know, even five or ten servers, logging into that server, going into the authorized key file, and pasting in your new SSH key is not that big of a deal. And it's certainly something you're going to want to do anytime you get a new laptop because you can't necessarily know if your SSH key has been compromised. So you come to a conference, you leave your laptop open, you walk away for just a second. I come in in a hot minute and copy your SSH key, private key onto a flash drive and walk away. You don't even know that that's happened. And so consequently, when able, you want to roll those SSH keys. And so that's why it's never recommended uh, to keep those indefinitely. You want to, you want to cycle them. The YubiKey, and one of the reasons that I'm constantly bragging on it, changes all of that because it's a read-only, or excuse me, it's a write-only device. It never gives up the private key. And so there's absolutely no way for an attacker to extract the SSH key off of the YubiKey. By the way, if they try to access it after three incorrect pin attempts, it will automatically destroy the key and you have to start all over. You do it another, I think it's another three times or six times, something like that. It actually destroys the puck, which is the ability to even write to the key, and then you're in real trouble. Then you got to send it back to YubiKey just to get it to function. Um, so there, it's a very secure device, and the idea there is this. Again, if you have 10 or 15 servers, uh, it might not be a big deal. Log into the authorized key file, update your SSH key. But when you start getting into hundreds of servers or thousands of servers, or if you find yourself in the situation that I frequently find myself in, which is I have to go fill out a a stack of paperwork if I want to add an SSH key to someone else's server because I don't own it. So I don't, I don't get to make those decisions. I have to ask um, the owners of that server. And sometimes depending on where the contract is with, it can involve the military or it can involve higher security environments. And so in those cases, they don't just, they don't let Noah just waltz in there and add whatever he thinks he wants to add. Right. And so there's a process that has to be followed. And so with the YubiKey, what it allows me to do is do that process one time, add my SSH key 
onto that server. And then every time I get a laptop, I just move the YubiKey over to my new computer. The other thing it allows me to do is this. We assign an employee when we hire them an extension number. So 701, 702, 703, 704, so on and so forth. We also assign them a YubiKey. So we add all of our employees' YubiKeys to all of the servers that they would ever have to manage. And then it's obviously tracked per user. And so when we terminate an employee or or they quit, we go up to them and say, hey, can we have the YubiKey back? They hand it back to us because it's a write-only device. We know that they couldn't have extracted the key. We rotate the pin on the device for the next user. And now the next person who gets hired and is assigned the extension 704 gets that corresponding YubiKey. And guess what? Bob's your uncle. All the keys are already are populated on all of the servers. Now, I want to take a moment to address in this email that I have seen a habit that I that that kind of frankly frightens me. I've seen a lot of people in the community that have taken my YubiKey tutorial video and said, well, instead of having just the SSH key on one YubiKey, I'm going to make a backup. And so they write the same SSH key to multiple YubiKeys, and you never want to do that. Um, because in doing so, you've entirely eliminated the idea of something you have and something uh, you know, now there's two somethings that you could potentially have. And if you have the something you know for either of them, one could be compromised. And again, you're back to the situation where you wouldn't necessarily know that it's been compromised. So uh, you certainly want to generate a new SSH key for every YubiKey you have. I have three that I have that I, I use routinely. One is inside of my laptop. It's the YubiKey Nano. The second one is the one that we give to all employees, which is the little keychain one. That I carry with me, it's attached to my Speed ID badge that gets me into the door and all the places. And then the third one, is, I call it my cold, uh, my cold shelf key. And it's another regular keychain key that's added to all of the servers, and it's in an undisclosed location. And the idea with that key is, in the event that I lose my badge and I lose my laptop, or the whole world goes sideways, I still have a way back into all of my servers without really having to think because every time we provision a server, there's an SSH key list, it's populated, and it contains all those emails. Steve, what are your thoughts? Do You uh, you must manage uh, a fair amount of SSH keys. Yeah, actually, I do. And it is pretty standard in the corporate environment to actually centrally manage your SSH keys. So from a security perspective, it actually is advisable to have one SSH key for multiple servers so long as you are having a way to centrally manage that. So what that allows you to do is revoke an SSH key um, when it goes bad and it revokes it on all of the servers across the way. So Red Hat has identity management. There's a free IPA server. You can do this sort of thing with Active Directory um, where when you connect with a user, it can hand out your SSH key to the server that you're trying to connect to. So uh, while we don't use the YubiKeys for various reasons um, because of the variety of clients that we connect to, and you know, just because I'm at one client today doesn't mean I will go back to that client. So it's not really practical for Red Hat to issue us all YubiKeys just because one week might be me and the next week might be Bob or Sally or, or whomever, right? But we definitely talk about centralizing the SSH keys for, for better management. Here's a question for you, Steve. Do you Have you ever set the free IPA side of that up even just as kind of a demo to play with? And if so, how difficult is that to get rolling? Uh, yeah, actually, I have. I've done it for clients as well. And it's, it's really easy to get going uh, after you create a user inside of the web UI, there's a place for you to go and upload your, your SSH key, and then it's attached to your username. And so you, the free APA server kind of acts like having an SSH key that is um, protected by a password, because you still have to have some form of login credential that happens, um, some way to identify yourself to the, the free IPA server. And after that happens, it hands out your SSH key to whatever servers are authorized to use it. Very cool. Our second email comes in from Corey. Corey writes in and says, Hi, Noah, just curious. I came across a search engine that I haven't really heard of before. At first glance, it looks really good, but a few things were concerning, and maybe I'm looking at this wrong. Swiss Cows says that it doesn't collect information. Then, when you go further into their privacy policy, it says that it stores your IP address and keywords for seven days. After seven days, it deletes your IP address, but keeps the keywords making the information gathered anonymous. But why does it need to keep your IP address 
at all. Also, they are in a transparent partnership with Bing. Last I heard, that was Microsoft, and usually I cringe when I hear Microsoft. My question is, how does this compare with DuckDuckGo from a privacy aspect, which is better, safer, and more secure? Well, to answer your question, Corey, the answer is DuckDuckGo doesn't store your IP address at all. In fact, if you go to DuckDuckGo.com slash privacy, you can read a copy of their privacy policy in which they break it down very clearly. Information that's not collected, information that is collected, and who they share it with. And under information that's not collected, they say point blank. When you search at DuckDuckGo, we don't know who you are, and there's no way to track your searches Track your searches together. When you access DuckDuckGo or any website from your web browser, automatically sends information about your computer, such as your user agent and IP address. Because this information could be used to link to your searches, we don't log or store it at all. Um it is, I will tell you, common even among places that do care about user privacy to track an IP address uh, from time to time, and they'll keep it for a little bit. And the reason that they do that is to combat abuse and to uh, and to combat spam and, and, and things like that. And so they want to have some concept of, hey, this person tried to break into our system or do something, and obviously that's that's problematic, and and we we don't want that happening. So um, even places that uh, that do care about privacy will sometimes store it for a limited amount of time. And the way that they get around that is if it's if you haven't done anything to draw attention to yourself in a week, then we wipe the information and that should be considered good enough for most people. Um, so your mileage may vary as the saying goes, but I wouldn't get too concerned about it. But yes, if you're asking from a from a from an apples to apples comparison, of course, DuckDuckGo is a better option. Our third email comes in from Alexi. Alexi writes in and says, hello, Noah, can you recommend any open source apps for self-hosted solutions for personal health related biometric data and tracking and visualization such as weight, sleep, blood glucose levels relative to food intake, blood pressure, etc. Now, I will start out by telling you that the vast majority of these kinds of products are tied to services or large companies um, that are pushing these services, right? So it's slim pickings to begin with. However, I've got one thing for you. It's called OpenHack, OpenHAK. Now, OpenHack is the Open Health Activity Kit, and they use a sim assembly 32-bit BLE MCU module that allows uh, for a number of different features. It's a fully Arduino-compatible device, and it enables long battery life. It's easy to use and includes wireless programming. So the open-source project um, that is wrapped around this intends to allow its users to discover activity tracking and how it works by creating an open platform that counts your steps, measures your heart rate, and they aim to help demystify these technologies and allow users to tweak, change, or modify and create all possible data streams that could result from collecting uh, this information. Now, the way that they've designed this, you can 3D print an enclosure that encloses this PCB to protect it. They give you all of the design files. They give you uh, every all the source code that you would need to modify or mix or share uh, both the PCB device as well as the software that goes on it. And then they have the ability to connect it to a typical 18 millimeter watch band so you can wear it like a typical wearable. Um, so all of the stuff is available on GitHub. Of course, we'll have a link for you in the show notes, but you can learn about more about it at openhack. That's openhak.com. Our fourth email comes in from Charlie. Charlie asks, good day. Ask Noah community. I recently watched a video reviewing a portable Grandstream SIP VoIP phone, which connects over Wi-Fi. Could this be used as a replacement for a mobile phone? By using a portable wireless access point, proving cell data to a Wi-Fi SIP phone. My guess is that it should be possible if you have a roof cell aerial connected over the Wi-Fi AP router via USB power, a USB power brick or cigarette lighter adapter. Then your Wi-Fi SIP phone is on the dash or mounted in a location. The 820 supports Bluetooth pairing and runs Android 7X. These phones are lost. It would make a replacement easier without data loss uh, being a sub $200 phone. Would it be possible to remotely wipe these devices if you lose it? Or if the password reset, if it doesn't connect to your home for, for at least once every 72 hours. Thanks, Charlie. So I'll kind of work my way backwards. I don't know of any software that 
automatically looks to see if it's at your home or connected to a specific Wi-Fi network once every 72 hours and will automatically wipe itself. Certainly, that's something that could be written. I'm not aware of anything off the top of my head. Um, but as far as using a cell phone, a, a Wi-Fi phone to replace a traditional cell phone, you're onto something here to a degree. I don't know that you're going to go buy a grand screen, grand stream device and just straight up replace your cell phone. However, I will tell you this. I am on a path to move all of my connective technology to an IP based workflow. And I'm on that path for a couple of reasons. First of all, I live in North Dakota. I live in the middle of the sticks. I live in a, in a, in a reasonable size city, but I'm very close to the sticks and it's five hours to the nearest metropolitan area. It's 75 miles to the next biggest town. So I am frequently in a place where I don't have cell phone reception and I can't rely on SMS. As a result of that, the only thing that I've been able to do is carry a number of different phones on a number of different carriers so that no matter where I am, I can hopefully get some sort of uh, connectivity. The problem comes in where people want to call my cell phone directly or want to text message me directly. And of course, that doesn't work because I don't know which cell phone I'm going to have that day. Depends on where I am. Depends on what I'm doing. Um, so what I've done is all of my messaging now comes over matrix. So that has kind of established itself in an IP workflow. And thanks to the bridging, I'm able to get my SMS messages that way as long as I leave a the 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 uh, the source phone, as it were, uh, connected inside of our IT room at the shop, and uh, using a little Android app to do that, I hope to uh, be able to move that over to a server-based hosting, which I'm actively working on right now. Uh, and then all of my calls are coming as SIP calls. So to a degree, I'm doing what you're saying, right? Yeah, I'm relying on the cell phone network only so far as it gives me an IP connection so that my IP programs, mainly 3CX and Element, can connect out to the Internet. And so if there was Wi-Fi available, I could just as easily connect to Wi-Fi and accomplish the exact same thing. Where I think this this whole system falls down, where it, ha where it would fall down for me anyway, is – I don't, I'm not always around a Wi-Fi network, right? And so when I'm in the car driving between here and the grocery store, Wi-Fi just isn't built to do that kind of handoff. And, and, and even if you had that large of a wireless network, it all have to be managed by the same place or same company or same system so that it could do a zero handoff. And that right now, that's just not a thing. So uh, I think where we're skating to is something like LoRa or some, maybe the next evolution of something like LoRa. And we might get there, but today you're kind of tied to a cellular network if you want to have mobile connectivity everywhere you go. Steve, how I, I suppose to a certain degree, I would imagine that a lot of your clients, a lot of places that you work for, you're doing a lot of things over your laptop. Do you find yourself with the, with a need for, for an actual traditional cell phone, a traditional cell phone call or SMS, or could you deal with just Wi-Fi? I could probably deal with just Wi-Fi. Uh for the most part, um, coming from Canada, most people don't actually text anymore. They use, you know, Telegram, WhatsApp, all of those sorts of things. So it has been a very long time since I've actually received actual text messages from someone. And by the same token, uh, I've actually found it very economical to pay for Skype which is like it's like four dollars a month to get anywhere in the u.s calling which worked for me while i was in canada and it's the same thing down here in the u.s i could pay four dollars and call anywhere in canada for that too so uh, particularly always having data somewhere around me has made it very easy and i've set up skype so that the callback number is just my cell phone number so i still people still see it like i'm being called just like a sip phone is attached to my regular cell phone number so i haven't really had the need to tackle this problem. I basically moved IP without intending to do that. Mm. Well, just uh, the natural consequence of, of, uh, of doing your job, I guess. Um, our pick of the week this week, gadget of the week this week specifically, is the Axis M3067P. Now, I have to tell you, this device is the exact reason why I added this segment to Ask Noah, because during the week, during my day job, I come across all sorts of random things, and I'm like, this device is amazing. Everybody should know about this device. Why is nobody talking about it? This is so cool. It solved a problem. I wish somebody had told me about this earlier. And now I have a place to talk about that stuff. So the M3067P is a 360-degree panoramic camera. It's a 6-megapixel camera from Axis. makes 
in my opinion, the best IP cameras out there. It's small, it's discreet, it supports H.264, H.265. And the best part about this camera is, again, that 360 panoramic view. So by default, you plug it in, you get an IP address, you set it, you set the password, all local, no cloud, because that's the way access works. Add it to, if you're using surveillance station like I am, add it to surveillance station, or you can add it to uh, zone mind or something like that. It supports a multitude of different streams. So by default, you get the traditional fisheye circular, I'm looking through a fishbowl view. And you can see the entire room. I was blown away. We, I put it in a very large room in the center and turned it on panoramic mode. And I couldn't believe that I could see all the way out to the edge. Now, is the edge obviously distorted? Of course it is. But you can definitely see that the guy in the blue shirt walked over to that door and did XYZ and then walked back over here and did, you know, ABC, right? You can totally see those kinds of details. Might not be able to actually identify the person and say that was, you know, so and so, but you can, you can definitely get some distinguishing qualities about the person. And that's in the periphery. Obviously, the closer you get to the center, the more crystal clear the image is. But the thing that I thought was really cool about this camera, Inside of the configuration, when you add it into the surveillance station, you get a you get to select the stream that you're pulling. So again, by default, you get that panoramic uh, fisheye bowl view, but you can then go into that the camera and select a one of uh, one of like five different views. So it divides the image into four regular quadrants, as if you had four cameras facing four different directions of the room: right, left, you know, front and back. And those don't have the distorted fisheye view. It, it corrects that. And so you can either choose to pull in each one of those streams as a separate camera. So it's like you're getting four cameras in one. Or you can choose to pull all four streams in as a single camera view that then it subdivides almost as if it's being it's a, it's its own multiplex signal. So when I say multiplex, if you think about the traditional TV and then I put four cameras so I get kind of one in each quadrant – this one camera view on your NVR will be then again subdivided into four additional camera views so you can get this the, the, the four quadrants that I'm talking about. Or you can pick any two quadrants and have it just divided in half. And all of those are available directly from the camera as separate streams. So, again, from the NVR's perspective, I can have the fishbowl view as one. I can have each one of those four quadrants as another. I can have all four of them together as yet another. And I can bring those all in as separate camera feeds. And then inside of my NVR, decide what my security person or what I want to or what anybody wants to look at. But wait, there's more as the as the television commercial goes, right? You can log from, from within Synology surveillance station, you can take your mouse and if you go over that camera view, you'll get little arrows that go up, down, left and right. And you can drag around and actually rotate around that panoramic view if you're in one of the other presentations to see uh, what's around the room or if like you, you have it. Looking straight on, you say, well, I really want to see, you know, uh, a couple feet over to the right or a couple feet over to the left. You can adjust that camera view just by dragging or look at it in real time. Absolutely fantastic camera. And they're under, I think they're under 600 bucks. So just a really fantastic camera. I have come across so many situations installing cameras for years where we would get a small room. And we just couldn't see everything. The larger rooms are easy enough. You just add multiple cameras. But the smaller rooms are sometimes difficult because even if the room gets small enough, no matter how many different camera views you get, you're always missing something. And so you end up putting like it looks crazy. You got cameras all all different directions to try to get all of the corners covered. And this with one single camera mounted in the center of the room, you can get everything all at once. So it's the Axis M3067P network camera. Again, a 6P mini dome with a 360 degree panoramic view. We'll have a link for you in the show notes available at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Make sure to check it out. In the news this week, uh, open source is moving into medical data sets. So the idea is, is pretty simple, right? You have a number of different AI applications in healthcare, and what they're using AI for is to evaluate medical images. So you have a cardiologist who takes a picture of the heart, or you have an obstetrician who takes, uh, you know, like uh, a mammogram or something like that, and you're trying to look for 
problems in that image or you're trying to look for patterns really in that image that match up with a particular diagnosis. Well, the problem has often been that the human eye can only catch so much. And certainly the imaging technology has gotten really, really good over the uh, the past few years. So as as humans have gotten not necessarily worse, but as as we've realized the the deficit in humans being able to identify these patterns patterns or find uh, very minute differences that could indicate an issue, medical people have started to look at AI and look at technology to do this for them. And so the problem is with AI, you have to train the AI. And in order to do that, basically what you need is a lot of medical images and ones that are normal and ones that are abnormal and ones that have all sorts of fringe cases. And once the computer learns that, then it can recognize that pattern and it can identify it over and over and over again. But until it learns that, that's not possible. And so obviously the, the imaging uh, equipment is very expensive. The imaging person's time is very expensive. The hospital's time is expensive. The company that designs all of these algorithms and captures it is expensive. So the resulting images that come out, no, and, and on top of that, there's the HIPAA situation, which is that it's protected medical information. So until it's de-anonymized and put in together in, into some sort of set, which also takes time and money, uh, it, the resulting image sets to get your hands on a set of images that you can then train AI is very, very expensive. Well, Stanford two years ago launched the AIMI Center, which is uh, essentially their free repository for data set uh, for data sets for researchers around the world. And so uh, they launched it two years ago, and AIMI has already acquired and annotated data sets for more than a million images, many of them uh, right from the Sanford University Medical Center. Researchers are able to now download those data sets at no cost and use them to train their AI models so they can recommend different kinds of treatment or actions. And so the exciting thing here is by offering this data at no cost, researchers now enable people to explore the far more niche areas. Um, obviously, when a company who has the money to purchase these medical data sets and train their AI, obviously, they're looking for a particular symptom or they're looking for a particular condition that they already offer a product or are willing to develop a product or medication or treatment to solve. It doesn't really help the the niche people, even if those niche areas are could save someone's life or, or easily affect somebody. If there's not a lot of money to be made, it's very difficult from a corporate research standpoint to invest money to treat those kinds of conditions. So this is a massive pivot inside of the medical community that's going to allow uh, various communities to come together and say, look, we want to study X and there's not really any money because the treatment would just be this and it's 20 bucks or 50 bucks or it's just, you know, simple one day procedure. It's no big deal. Um, so there's not a lot of money to be made in it, but it would drastically help someone's life. We'd be able to serve those patients better if we knew that this was occurring. And now now we have those medical image sets. Now you combine that with the trajectory of open source software and the open source development of AI. This is going to lead to some really great things down the road. So super excited to see that open source is kind of making its way everywhere. And as as things like COVID come into our society, it's great to know that it's open source that's going to power a lot of the solutions for these things. Well, Steam is back in the news this week because they've hit that 1% Linux users. Now, I know that there's some people that are going to hear that and go, yay, fantastic, 1%, who cares? Well, here's why. Gaming on Linux is niche, to say the least, especially when you're talking about 1%. But the number of people who are gaming on Linux are moving up. And this actually started to happen before Valve released uh, the Steam Deck. And so now with the Steam Deck being released, uh, we can only assume that those numbers are going to climb. But if you back out and take a 30,000 foot view at the landscape of what you're looking at, we see this consistent pattern coming up over and over and over again. Microsoft is interested in making money by selling Windows. And they're having a hard time doing that because really the operating system has gotten about as good as it's going to get. We're going to add little features. We're going to tweak and we're going to modify. But for the most part, people want their browsers. People want their file managers. People want the applications that they're going to run. And then they want the operating system to get out of their way. And when Windows 11 was announced, Yes, they offered it as a free upgrade to people that were running Windows 10, and that was beneficial. And so people said, well, that's good. 
But they made a couple of interesting decisions. They're not going to allow it to run on PCs older than four years, essentially. I know there's some caveats to that, but essentially it's not going to run on PCs older than four years. And they're also going to require an online account if you don't have the pro version, if you have the home version. And so largely what this is going to do is they, they, they are going to push people into Microsoft as a service. Interestingly enough, this is occurring. So you can go right now today to, is it Windows 360? Yeah, Windows365.com because Microsoft has opened the availability for Windows 365. What is Windows 365, you might ask? A cloud-based PC setup that lets businesses stream Windows 10 or Windows 11 via a web browser. Now, this comes as no surprise to anybody that works in this industry. If we at AltaSpeed Technologies can look over and go, hey, we can spin up a Libvirt server and we could deliver those workstations to you anywhere. If I can think of that in Podunk, North Dakota, Microsoft can definitely think about that and they're going to find a way to stream those desktops to you wherever you are. So the pricing is 31 bucks a month if you want to stream Windows 365 per user and access to a cloud PC. And that might be good for a lot of businesses that are saying, hey, we don't want to ship a laptop to a to our remote workers. We would just rather they log on to Windows365.com and open their corporate workstation. Then when they're gone, we can blow it away and all the things, right? The problem is if you're Valve, if you're a software manufacturer and you're trying to build performing, really performing games, and you're most interested in connecting with the gamer, you're not necessarily wanting to deal with this massive company that's in between, Who, which, by the way, has not only a competing interest with your product, but is actively focusing on a different market most of the time, right? So on one hand, they're focusing on the business side, and so they don't really care about gamers in that respect. On the other hand, they're actively pushing their own Xbox 360, their own Xbox platform. And we dealt with a service call where we thought a client had malware because they said this Xbox communication thing has come up on our screen. And this is a professional office environment, right? This Xbox communication thing has come up on our screen, and I think somebody's taken over our computers. And we log in and did a little research and found out that Windows 10 had pushed an update, and the update had some sort of gaming platform communication thing built in. And when you pressed a specific keystroke, it brought this UI up. And absolutely ridiculous. Um so so if that's what those are the kind of decisions that Microsoft is making, you're sitting over here at Valve and you're saying, I, we want to we want to branch out. We want to do more. What do you what operating system are you going to use when you roll out on your handheld on your handheld device? Probably isn't going to be Windows. Right. So they make the decision to go over to Linux. They roll it out. It gets it has really resounding success on top of that. They've launched Proton, so they have the ability to run all of those Windows games, and they can actually tell developers, hey, you want to target Windows? No problem. Go ahead and target Windows. We are still going to just target Proton as well, and you'll be able to run on this handheld gaming piece. This is how Lotus succeeded, or excuse me, Microsoft succeeded in taking away the market share from Lotus. First, they were able to read, write, and open uh, Lotus 1-2-3 spreadsheets. Then it became Excel. They made that path easy. They lowered the friction to business, which is what good businesses do. They lower the friction to their customers. And this is what Valve is doing, and this is not what Microsoft is doing. And I think Valve sees that, and I think Valve is responding to that. So, yes, it's only 1%, but that two two things there. One is that's going to grow. Two is... I think the number of Windows users is going to shrink, if only because uh, of the decisions Microsoft is making, shooting them, them own selves in the foot. The Open Compute Project is something that we don't talk enough about on this program. But the Open Compute Project started life in 2009 as an internal project at Facebook called Project Freedom. And two years later, Intel, Goldman Sachs, Rackspace on microsystems, uh, and Facebook have all come together to form the Open Compute Project. And the idea here is sharing designs of the data center uh, with, along with best practices. And so Facebook, Microsoft, LinkedIn, who are largely the, the largest consumers of the OCP or Open Compute Project technology, they're looking to collaborate together so that they can get what they call OCP-ready programs to tell the marketplace 
that their facilities are ready to accept open hardware. So if you've not seen the Open Compute Project, I highly recommend that you check out the video that we put together on it um, as it works in Facebook. That's available on our MindDrip Media channel on YouTube. But the idea is they looked at what you need in a data center and inside of a data center rack. And what you found was that, yes, we have traditional racks with 19-inch spacing, and you can put a server in. Then when you need another server, you put another server in. You want more storage, you buy another server and put some more storage in there. And I guess we need some more memory, so we buy, well, another server, and this one we put more memory in. Eventually, it gets to the point is, hey, we didn't really need a processor in all those storage servers. We didn't really need that much memory in all of those uh, GPU compute things. It would be really nice to be able to say, hey, this is storing a lot of images. All we want is a ton of GPU and a ton of storage. And then over here, we're doing a ton of calculations for this, that, and the other. So we want a ton of CPU, don't need much storage, don't need much GPU. And this is kind of the design of open compute. You combine that with hardware agnosticism. So the idea that it's not one manufacturer that makes the open compute project, it's just the open compute project standards. And anybody, any white label manufacturer can manufacture to these specifications. And so the guidelines include everything from a 21 inch open rack design that can accommodate power densities up to 40 kilowatts per rack. Uh, to put that into perspective for you, your, uh, your house probably has something like 2400 watts. So 24 kilowatts. And this is 40 kilowatts. Um, I'm sorry, 2.4, uh, kilowatts. And this is 40 kilowatts. Uh, and, and it, so it's not backwards compatible with your standard 19 inch rack. And obviously requires a, a whole new way of looking at things. But the, 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 the short and skinny of it is they have a power module that has a DC rail. So instead of every computer taking in AC power, then immediately converting it to DC, which you lose something like 50% in the process of doing, uh, they were just taking in AC one time, tying that to a UPS because what rack doesn't want a UPS, which is DC. And then we pass that DC power along to rails at the back so that anything that slides into the rack immediately has DC power. Oh, by the way, when it fails, your UPS is built in because we can decide how much battery we need inside of the rack. If you need a bunch of GPU, you can you just install GPU modules inside of the rack. If you want a bunch of storage, you install a bunch of storage. If you want a bunch of compute, you install a bunch of compute. And you can decide, uh, you can customize per rack or per data center what your needs are. Quote from the article, the last year in, in North America in the United States where our GDP was cut in half, we built millions of square feet of data centers while the supply chain was severely constrained. If you were married to just one manufacturer or just one vendor based on your specifications or other, or other limitations that you'd built into the design of your data center, you were at a significant disadvantage. I like to think of vendor agnosticism or vendor neutrality as a slippery slope that took me all the way to open source, said Rob Kyle, the co-lead of the Open Compute Project, the OCP Ready Program. When someone sees the value in supply chain that can be made resilient by having multiple sources for a single piece of equipment and that can meet the same performance characteristics, the next logical step for me is to go full open source. And so again, what you're seeing here is uh, open source and the concept of open source and the way that we make money using open source succeeding in large part due to the fact that it doesn't have vendor lock-in. It doesn't lock anyone down. And so you're continually making progress. You're not constantly starting over because, oh, well, we had Dell. Now we have to redo it with HP. Now we have to redo it with Lenovo. Now we have to redo it. You're not doing that. You're constantly looking forward and constantly building your data center and your racks to fit around your needs. Now, before we go any further, I want to welcome Matthew Miller, the, the Fedora project lead, who joins us on the Ask Noah show to talk about Nest. Hey, Matthew, welcome into the program. Thank you. Always glad to be here. So I'm, I'm really excited to have you on, Matthew. So the annual Fedora Contributor Conference is coming up Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Uh, for those who haven't heard about this conference, tell me, what is the annual Fedora Contributor Conference? 
Yeah, so normally it is called Flock to Fedora, and we try to get people who are involved with the project from wherever they are in the world to come to a central location so we can talk and collaborate and a lot build our community because just those in-person connections are so amazing and important, even though they're, you know, we do most of our work virtually, even in the pre-COVID times, we were connecting online all the time as a global community, just um, those in-person fun times of connections were so great. Uh, so um, that usually alternated between the United States and somewhere in Europe. Um, but with COVID times last year, we had to go virtual. So instead of flock to Fedora, we made it Nest with Fedora, a stay-at-home event where we try to replicate that same experience of fun and bonding and learning and just being together, but on the internet. Tell me a little bit about FUDCON and how this is the evolution of that. Yeah, so long, long ago, like in the 2000 zeros, uh, we uh, we started uh, FUDCON, Fedora User and Developer Conference, the first Fedora conferences. And over time, those had kind of evolved into regional conferences every everywhere in the world. We did kind of a small conference several times a year and tried to get developers and users to talk together. Uh, but it ended up not working very well because... Uh, the developer content tended to be where we have concentrations of Fedora developers and uh, not necessarily talking to the right people. And we had developers who were, you know, in Latin America or India or wherever, um, you kind of feeling isolated from like the big hubs of Fedora contributors in you know, the Czech Republic, where there's a big Red Hat engineering office. So a lot of Fedora people around there or in the United States. And so it kind of felt more isolating than bringing people together. So we switched it up and a FUDCON had also become an unconference where there had been you know, not, not pre-programmed talks and that also wasn't working very well. So Flock and Nest are run more formally. We have a call for papers beforehand and everything. Um, and we have more of a developer focus, a contributor focus in general, although not just programmers, but you know all the other designers and writers and all the other people that we need to make, make a Linux distribution. Uh, more of a focus on that. But because it is virtual, because we're not limited in the number of people we can have join us, uh, we really this year and last year would love to have people who you know, are not, you know, you're kind of curious about how to get involved in a, in a Linux distribution community, how to like kind of go from I'm just a user to I'd like to, this to be something I'm more, more of a part of. Um, we'd really love to have, um, you know, people who are interested in that. And I think that's probably a lot of your listeners. So hello, listeners. We'd love to have you. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. Who is the target audience of the conference? What kind of people... Uh, should hear this and say, hey, that's for me. I should attend. So, yeah, it is a lot of you know, people in the project talking to each other about what we're doing, what we're planning, what we're going to do next. But also, you know, some uh, some of our keynotes are kind of on skills, like how to negotiate those kind of uh, things, le lessons for open source contributors that are useful to everybody. I think uh, people will find those things valuable. Um, my keynote talk, of course, I kind of talk about our strategy and uh, give off Fedora statistics for the last year. So that'll be interesting to any kind of involved Fedora user, any distro interested user. But really, if uh, the thing that I find amazing about Fedora Linux and you know, Linux distros in general is this is something that you're not just a consumer of it. I mean, you don't have to be, you don't have to be super involved, but just by being a Fedora Linux user, you are actually part of the project and part of the community. And it is something that belongs to, you know, Fedora, so Red Hat is sponsors the project and owns some of the trademarks, but Fedora really belongs to us as people. It belongs to all of the users of Fedora. And so uh, I think the line between I'm just a user and I'm a contributor should be really thin. It should be easy to become you know, more involved and more of a contributor, even if your contributions are just a little bit and you're telling your friends about it, you're writing a blog post, writing a magazine article here and there, uh, helping people out on Ask Fedora. Like all of that makes you a Fedora contributor, which is, I think, one of the great things about our community. What does the conference layout look like? What does the conference schedule look like? So uh, um, I think we've got 
two tracks on Friday and or Thursday and Saturday and three tracks on Friday. Uh, we are using a platform called Hopin, which is a video conferencing platform, um, which we had a good experience with last year. So we're using it again. Um, it's, you know, uh, run in your browser uh, with your chat windows and all of those things. Um, and it's again it's uh, free to sign up registration go go to it's actually flock to fedora.org register there sign up and join us do you see this event going back to in person in the future and at that time will it still be possible for people to participate virtually i ask that matthew because there are people that for the first time in their lives are able to attend a lot of these conferences because they have transitioned into a virtual event yeah, uh, it, that is is really something we're really thinking about a lot. We did have a lot of people, you know, I was just talking about how I want to make it a, a wider net and bring in more people who might be more on the edge. And it's, you know, a lot less of a commitment than to travel to a, a, a place for there. Then, of course, people who are in parts of the world where that's not easy, where your economic situation doesn't make it easy or whatever, or you know, people with disabilities, people who for whom travel is hard for other reasons. Yeah, um, so that virtual component has been awesome. Um, at the same time, there's something just really irreplaceable about the human connections of an in-person event that I would hopefully like to be able to get back to as well. So I think that we will have some virtual component to it, but also we'll definitely want to go back to in-person as well. So, oh, go ahead. So, no, sorry, uh, I'm just excited. What, one of the things that we started doing that we hadn't done before, we always had Fedora Linux release parties when release comes out, the little events that people you know, get together, have some cake, often literally, or pizza, and kind of celebrate the release coming out. And we started doing virtual event parties. Uh, release parties as well and those have been really successful and we've got a lot of again uh, people who consider themselves Fedora users rather than Fedora contributors kind of came to them and joined those celebrations and we're definitely going to keep doing those as virtual events every you know, twice a year when we have any release come out that's been a huge success um, I don't know if that will be enough for our virtual conference presence or we may also have something you know, when we go back to in-person flock that's virtual along with it so the event is called it's nest this year right yeah it's a little it's a little joke because um previously you know the in person thing is flock to fedora where all the um i guess the birds in this metaphor of our community come together in one great gaggle in one place uh but since that's not possible you know stay at home nest but be with us virtually so the event happens August 5th, 6th, and 7th. That's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, coming up later this week. It's available entirely yep. online. And Matthew, if there's somebody out there and they're saying to themselves, well, gee, you know what? I'm I'm a Linux user or I'm a Fedora user, and, and I like what I do, and I, I love the Linux community. But, man, I just don't know anything about development. I don't really have anything to contribute to Fedora. Person that that has an interest in getting involved, should they come? Oh, I, I, I'm sure that person actually has more to contribute than they think, because just like at any organization, if you imagine like a tech company like Red Hat, where I work, where we've got, a, you know, some thousands of engineers, but the whole company is 14,000 people. The vast majority of people aren't programmers. You know, they have skills in administrative things. They have skills in writing or talking to people or you know connecting people up, skills in art. All sorts of things. There's barely a job that I can think of that doesn't have some way it could apply to you know the things we need in a Linux distribution, just the same as in any other thing. So even if you're not a programmer, like you don't have to know how to code to be involved in Linux. Uh, so, of course, if you are a coder, we've got places for you there as well. Uh, it's not uh, technology is obviously important, but there are just so many things to it that you can be a part of even without having that. You know, a hardcore engineer training or mentality. The event is Nest with Fedora, a virtual substitution for Flock to Fedora. It's coming this week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. More information available at flocktofedora.org. You can sign up there, get registered with the hop-in uh, platform, 
for participating virtually. They're going to have lightning talks. They'll have sessions. They'll have workshops and tutorials and a hack fest, a half day. Matthew, tell me about the half day hack fest. Yeah, so um, this Hackfest in particular is uh, working on some of the Python things. Uh, so, and I think this is going to be more people who are, you know, if you are a Python coder and developer, uh, getting some of the uh, some of our Python packaging into shape. Uh, this is kind of a thing we've done at the in-person gatherings, and the team working on this wanted to replicate that this year virtually as well. Just that you can get a lot done when you have a lot of people focused on one thing in one place. Matthew Miller, he is the uh, the project Fedora, <laughs> the Fedora project lead, uh, and and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah Show. Matthew, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Anything else people need to know about this event? Uh, it's going to be lots of fun. I know that uh, this year has been hard with COVID, and it's going to continue to be hard. Um, I know some of the virtual events I've gone to have felt a lot more like, oh, no, it's just more Zoom calls, more meetings. Um, we're very aware of that, and this is going to be an enjoyable, fun event that will not feel like more work. I guarantee it. It sounds like it. And the truth is, Matthew, from what I've heard from people that have, have started to get involved in these events is there was a certain level of intrepidation to going to an event. And there was obviously a certain cost associated with traveling and going to an event and scheduling work time off and all of those kinds of things. Those barriers are removed for the time being. And so you have an opportunity to connect with people and get engaged in the community in a whole new way and potentially contribute back. This is a great way to get started doing that with Fedora. So thank you so much for coming on the program. Obviously, you know, you have an open invitation. We'll get you back real soon. Uh, thanks. I'd love to. Always a pleasure. Open phones this hour at 855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. So last week, my friend Steve Evans and I started the discussion of building his new house. And so I've invited him back this week so we could kind of uh, continue that discussion. So, Steve, I want to ask you this. Globally speaking, aside from getting all the wires and all the nitpicking stuff, what kind of big picture things are you looking for? Because you've moved from an environment to where you didn't uh, you didn't own the the device or the, the 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 structure itself and so there's probably some limits into what you could do that's now been that restriction has now been lifted so what kind of things are you looking forward to to being able to to deck out your house automate your house so part of what i'm looking forward to is i want to set up a section of the house for the kids so that they can hop on and make video calls to family that that we have in canada and so part of that thought was maybe a nice uh, large touchscreen and some way because they're kids they're going to move all over the place and so that means that obviously we can't attach microphones to them or anything like that um, because they just end up yanking the wires out so we're looking at kind of like a little video station for that and we also have like my wife and i like playing video games together and my son likes to play minecraft and so we're looking at kind of setting up somewhere where we can have a comfortable area for all of us to kind of play together if we need to. Um, and then further to that, my entertainment is largely centered around the projector that I've had for the last 10 years. And so one of the rooms in the house is going to be kind of a dedicated projector room where I haven't decided if we're going to go with something like um, Sonos bars or something like that. Like right now we've got a 7.1 surround sound system, uh, but it's kind of aging. So the, the amplifier and the sub are still really good, but maybe we change out the speakers. So some of those things are, are on the top for decking out the house. So I want to talk a little bit about this conference station that you're talking about putting in. So we kind of hashed this out a little bit. And there are some things that I was able to give you some recommendations on. You know, I have this ViewSonic touchscreen that I have here in the studio that I really like because it allows me to fire off uh, – audio events and, and stuff like that. And the nice thing is because it's just a regular USB device, it the computer just sees it as a USB mouse, essentially. Um, and so it'll work with any distribution of your choice, those kinds of things. Now, you, like I, uh, only are running Linux in your house. So whatever solution you land on um, would likely have to run on Linux. What kind of software platforms are you considering for, uh, for video conferencing? And, and what are kind of your constraints? So I guess the constraints are largely the network effect for family, right? Because we're not going to ask them to install a bunch of different applications. So that 
basically leaves us with three, really. We've got Skype, we've got Telegram, because everybody has Telegram now. And um, since Apple is sort of opening up their their um, FaceTime, that also is an option for the, the members of the family that also have Apple devices. Would you consider any sort of a any sort of a, a video conferencing thing that runs strictly inside of the web browser? So maybe it doesn't require installing any software, but just requires going to a specific site. Um, and then on your side, on the conference PC, because you had mentioned, you know, it'd be really nice if the kids can walk up to this touchscreen and just hit, you know, grandma, and then grandma pops up on the screen, or dad, or mom, or what, you know, whatever. Um, not a complicated UI that would just load into that particular conference room. Is that something that might be up for consideration? Honestly, as far as I'm concerned, everything's on the table. It's going to depend on um, how much we can get adoption. So uh, you mentioned grandma. In this case, my mom is a fairly large Luddite and is uh, really technology can be very difficult for her. She, she refused, absolutely refused to use any form of technology until I want to say about six years ago when her work issued her a BlackBerry and said, now everybody has to have a smartphone. Um, before that, despite the fact that um, both my dad and I are highly technical people, she absolutely refused technology. Jeez, mom, get on board, huh? Okay, well, so everything's up for the consideration. So here's what I'm going to do, Steve. I'm going to suggest that we throw this out to the community and say, help Steve get connected with his family. He's now across the border and, uh, and, 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 and needs to be connected with his family. So what would you do? We have the conference PC is kind of, a, kind of a given, right? Like, I mean, it's easy enough to, to throw an Intel Nook, um, and a touchscreen monitor and we can get a decent webcam and we can get a decent microphone and those kinds of things. But what actual software do you use? And that's the thing I didn't have a real good answer for you because in the commercial space, if we're bidding something out, usually that's not something I get to choose. Usually that's something I'm being handed. They're like, here's our web conferencing solution. Go install it, installer. Um, and so this is kind of a new thing. And, and obviously there are a number of different platforms out there, but it would be interesting to see uh, what people come back with. So send your emails in live at asknoahshow.com. We'd love to hear from you. What do you recommend Steve put in his house? Now, from our questions bot, I think this might be the first real question we've asked on the air. Uh, Sleuth says, Steve, I'm sure that you're going to be using VLANs in your house. What kind of managed switches do you like for home networks? So, yeah, I actually already run VLANs in my house because um, I I largely build my own IoT sensors. So I have a couple of, of off-the-shelf ones, but largely I actually go and get like an ESP you know, 32 or 8266, and I kind of hack together my own sensors, but I still put them on their own VLAN. And so right now I'm using the Unify 8-port switch because it also does power over Ethernet um, for a couple of my uh, access points that support that. And so I, I wouldn't say that it's my favorite, but I would say that it's what I have and it works. As long as you're not doing stacking and stuff like that, Unify will get you a good long way. Um, I will give a plug for my favorite switches in the world, and those are HP. Um, man, we just got the new 1950, Steve. Oh, my gosh. I logged into the web UI for the first time, and I'm like, holy bananas. Uh, they, uh, they've really done a great overhaul. And the thing, one of the things, it's kind of a stupid thing, but I, one of the things I really like about HP switches, when you SSH into them and when you get to the command line, it has a menu system. So instead of just having like a blinking cursor, uh, which is fine if you're running Cisco iOS and you're the most well-known, you know, switch CLI on the planet. Okay. But when you, when you, when you step away from that, I don't want to necessarily have to learn your syntax. And yes, I can figure it out. And yes, there's documentation, but I really like the fact that I SSH into the switch and I just get a menu. Press one for interfaces. One. What would you like the IP address of the, of, of VLAN one admin interface to be? And, you know, two VLANs. What switch ports would you like to assign to this? I, I like that. I like those little, those wizard style CLI things. So in, when push comes to shove and, and everything breaks loose and I'm sitting there with a console cable hanging off of a, a rack and everybody knows that IT rooms are, of course, the place where everybody puts the most creature comforts, um, I don't have to sit there for any longer than I absolutely have to. And I think HP does a really good job of that. So I'll give a plug to them. I know there's a lot of people in the community that are really big fans of Dell switches. And I don't personally have any. We have a client 
that um, they're actually uh, uh, they actually have a full time IT guy, and the guy is, is uh, listens to the show and and a super talented guy and does does an amazing job. Um, but he calls us from time to time for some help, and so I've I've been able to kind of look over his shoulder at the UI of of Dell managed switches, and I have to say they look pretty nice. Um, so those would be up for consideration. It's interesting, Steve, if you don't mind, tell the story about your Netgear switch, because I would tell you if somebody called and asked me and said, what do you think of Netgear switch? I would say, I think they're just above trash. Um, I'm not really a big fan of them, but the, you purchased a Netgear switch and it literally sucked you into a rabbit hole. Yeah. So I wanted a, so a couple of constraints. Noah mentioned that, um, I was in an apartment and so that means that I I have a very low tolerance for noise because our apartment isn't a bunch of rooms. It is one large area and then the two, the two bedrooms. And so that meant that uh, traditional switches with their loud little fans, even the modded fans, I don't have uh, spells of approval factor for that, that level of noise. So I was looking for, I wanted a 10 gig switch or at least something that had 10 gig ports for my NAS. And I, I landed on this Netgear switch because it has reasonable price and it had a couple of 10 gig ports. The problem, unbeknownst to me, and, and shame on me for not doing better research, is that this switch fills up its state table from time to time and then it locks up. There is nothing you can do except power cycling it to get it to come back. And so the hole that this sucked me down was I travel for work, or at least I did in the before times. and this switch was critical because it connected everything to my NAS. And when it would go down, you know, it was a big pain. My wife is very tolerant. She is very tolerant, but it is a big pain for me to be like, go unplug this. And then she gets on a video call and like shows me like, which one is it? Because, you know, it's not my only switch kicking around. Um, and she's very good about not unplugging, like just randomly pulling plugs. She wants to get the right one. So that was kind of a big pain. So what I did was I went and got a Tekken smart switch um, and put Tasmoda on it. And I'll give a plug to my friend over at the self-hosted show, Alex. Uh, I work with him. And so he was the one that gave me this kind of recommendation. So I get this one smart switch just so that I could turn this this Netgear switch on and off remotely if I needed to. I put it on its own separate thing so that I didn't have to worry about it taking the smart switch out and all the rest of that. Um, and that actually led me to making my entire house smart. And I, I was reflecting the other day that this purchase of this switch was probably one of the most expensive uh, tech purchases because I essentially went all in after a little while where I started with a couple smart switches and then I had a couple light bulbs and then I decided I needed something to manage this all and it all just kind of went it took over my entire apartment, basically, and and here you arrive today. So uh, as it comes into as it comes into VLANs, have you put any thought into if you're going to set that up slightly differently? So how many VLANs are you going to have? What are their purposes going to be? I don't think that I really need more than two at this point, uh, largely because if I am going to give somebody access to to like a guest network, what I do is I just throw them on that IoT land because essentially that IoT one is ridiculously throttled uh, and it has nothing. It's almost like a DMZ where it, it has full access to the internet. So if you hop on my regular LAN, I'm doing Facebook blocking, I'm doing ad blocking, I'm doing a whole bunch of like DNS filtering, I'm doing all kinds of crazy stuff on my regular LAN. You get on this one, you get... 3% of my overall bandwidth and no restrictions. And so this is like people want to go check Facebook or, you know, you're not going to, I'm not going to cry if someone breaks the, you know, eight character password that I have on this because they're not going to really do any damage. And I haven't come across a situation where I want to do more than two VLANs. Okay. That, well, that makes sense. I, uh, I typically like to have one VLAN for myself and all of my projects and all of my stuff. And then I have a lab VLAN that I do work stuff on. Then I have the general house family network stuff. And then I have the guest. And like you, 
if it's an IoT device and I don't trust it, it's essentially my untrusted network. And I really don't care if you're a guest at my house or an IoT device or whatever. I get it. You want a connection to the internet. I will give you that. Uh, anything else you want to add, Steve, about your, uh, about your house or, or your plans to do so or anything that you want to ask the, uh, the community for help for? I guess this is the first time that I've owned a house. And so I would be open to any kind of tips or suggestions, things that you wish you knew going into this. So, um, particularly we're going to, I've wired my in-laws house and my, my parents' house. Like I've, I've done lots of ethernet wiring in, in my life in a previous job as a network admin. Um, but this is more like if you are going to do a house all over again, um, before all the stuff gets set into place, what would you do? How would you think about it? Because honestly, I have my conception, but there are some people that have put way more thought into this than I have. And I'm, I'm always open to other people's ideas because maybe I cherry pick bits and pieces from, from suggestions I get. Yeah. I, I, I too like to cherry pick things uh, from people. And I also like to flat out throw stuff out when I think it's a bad idea. So, Hey Steve, I really appreciate you taking the time to join me. It was great to catch up and understand where you're going with your house. Of course, we'll continue to document the process as we move Steve to America. Uh, the music in my ears, it means we're out of time, but you can catch the show 24-7. You can catch reruns, all the documentation that we use to put the show together. It's available for you at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Follow us on Twitter, at Colonel Linux, or the show, at Ask Noah Show. We'll be back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Have a good week.